In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we are continuing our series on the Eucharist and the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In particular, in this episode, we will discuss the way that Christ is present in the Eucharist, what it means for Jesus to be really, truly, and substantially present, what transubstantiation is, and how we can offer worship to the Eucharist outside of Mass. I hope you enjoy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip, that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever, Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I'm the Director of Faith Formation here at the St. Philip Institute. And in this episode, we're going to be continuing our series on the Catechism of the Catholic Church and its teaching on the Eucharist. So this is actually the fourth episode in this series. Um, If you've missed the previous ones, they are right there on our YouTube channel, which you can uh, go back to and listen, or Spotify or anywhere else. So we're picking up here... Um, in paragraph 1356. So this episode is going to focus on uh, paragraph 1356 to 1381. And in the beginning of this section, the heading in the Catechism is the Sacramental Sacrifice, Thanksgiving, Memorial, and Presence. So what we're dealing with in this section of the text is these big ideas about the, the Eucharist as a sacrifice, as a very particular kind of sacrifice, The notion of thanksgiving, the notion of memorial, and especially what I'll focus on the most in these comments here today is the way in which Christ is present in the Eucharist. And that's actually something that we really have a bit of a crisis with um, in the Church, although I think maybe sometimes uh, there's a little bit of more gloom than than is reality um, when people talk about that. But nevertheless, thanksgiving, memorial, and presence is kind of what's going to be the focus here. So at the beginning of this section, uh, in paragraph 1356, we read this. If from the beginning Christians have celebrated the Eucharist and in a form whose substance has not changed despite the great diversity of times and liturgies, it is because we know ourselves to be bound by the command the Lord gave on the eve of his passion. Do this in remembrance of me. And I love how the Catechism sort of sets the stage here of the way we see the Eucharist. it's Of course, it's incredibly important. It is, you know, the source and summit of our faith. Uh, earlier in, in, the, in this series, we saw that it, the Church calls the Eucharist the sacrament of sacraments. Why is it so important? It's because it was a command given explicitly to the Church on the eve of His Passion, do this in remembrance of me. We are doing this, namely celebrating the Eucharist and continuing to, to preach to people what the Eucharist is, because it was given as this treasure and gift handed on to us um, by Christ himself on the night uh, before his Passion. So the Church goes on, the, the Catechism goes on in 1357 to say that we carry out this command of the Lord by cele- celebrating the memorial of his sacrifice. In doing so, we offer to the Father what he has himself given us, the gifts of his creation, 
bread and wine, which by the power of the Holy Spirit and the words of Christ have become the body and blood of Christ. Christ is thus really and mysteriously made present. Right, so in this one paragraph, 1357, it sort of sums up the key things that are going to be kind of unpacked over the, the remaining paragraphs that we're going to be dealing with today. The notion of a memorial, um, the presence of Christ, um, and the fact that it is Trinitarian. So notice again, and we've seen this already, as the Catechism discusses the Eucharist, there is all throughout this deep Trinitarian um, grounding for the whole thing. So right here in 1357, we see the Church, uh, through the Catechism teaching, that we offer our thanksgiving to the Father. And what are we giving to the Father? Well, we're giving the gifts of His creation, which He's already given to us, but right, we're returning to Him. And we do this by the power of the Holy Spirit and the words of Christ. That creation becomes the body and blood of Christ. So there is an element of the Father— there's an element of the Holy Spirit, and of course, Christ is at the center. And the Church teaches here in this section of the Catechism, very important, the notion of thanksgiving kind of being the big umbrella under which we hold all these other ideas about the Eucharist. So literally, right, the word Eucharist means thanksgiving, and that's a very important concept for us to keep in mind of what it is we're doing when we are in the liturgy, what the work of the liturgy is. So in Mass, when we celebrate the Eucharist, we offer prayers of thanksgiving, we offer adoration, we offer prayers of contrition and supplication, and we do this all within the concept, context of the Eucharist, but that's united above all by the notion of thanksgiving. So actually, if you look at the Catechism's teaching on prayer, um, you'll see that these are the different types of prayer that we uh you know, hold to as Catholics, adoration, adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, supplication. And it's that thanksgiving that kind of really is the highest um, form of prayer, because when we're making a prayer of contrition, well, that's good to say that you're sorry for something. When we're asking in supplication for something, that's good. We should ask God for those things. To adore uh, and, and give thanks to Christ. So those sort of are higher. And Eucharist means thanksgiving, and that kind of ties it all together. So the Eucharist, the Catechism says, is a thanksgiving and praise to the Father. Um, and it is a thanksgiving that we are, we are giving thanks to God by uh, uniting all of creation through the gift of bread and wine, which we talked about in an earlier episode, the symbolism of bread and wine and why those are used in the celebration of the Eucharist. Um, now, the text also goes on to talk about the Eucharist as a memorial and as a sacrifice. Actually, it says it's a sacrificial memorial. So we need to talk a little bit about this notion of sacrifice um, and this notion of memorial. And we did talk a little bit in, in an earlier episode about the biblical sense of a memorial, uh, but I do want to highlight that again just a little bit here. So the biblical sense of a memorial is that a memorial will bring a past event and present it to our memory. Um, it brings it back to us. And the Catechism says that the, the events that are brought back in a memorial to our memory are brought back so that we will conform our lives to those events. So I'll, I'll read you here this paragraph from the Catechism that kind of brings this out. Um, this is paragraph 1363. In the sense of sacred scripture, the memorial is not merely the recollection of past events. So it's not just remembering them, right? But the proclamation of the mighty works wrought by God for men. 
in the liturgical celebration of these events, they become in a certain way present and real. So memorials have a liturgical dimension to them, something that we can reenact and celebrate and that has a liturgical dimension to it. It's recognizable as a liturgy. And through that liturgical memorial, the, the catechism says, these events that we're recalling, right, they become in a certain way present and real. The catechism goes on here. This is how Israel understands its liberation from Egypt. Every time Passover is celebrated, the Exodus events are made present to the memory of believers so that they may conform their lives to them. And that is what the Israelites believed about the Passover. That's why it was a perpetual memorial, something that had to be done over and over and over. And it brought that event from the past back into the present and made it real so that the Israelites could remember the tremendous goods that the Lord had done for them, the good acts, the, the miracles he had worked for them, and so that they could transform their lives and conform them to those mysteries, to those miracles. So that's what we're doing in the Eucharist. The Eucharist, the Church says, is a memorial of what? Of Christ's passion, death, and resurrection, of his redemption for us by his suffering and death on the cross, where he gave us his body and blood, right? And it's bringing that to the present again so that we can remember it and conform our lives to it. So in the Old Testament, the memorial par excellence is the Exodus, right? The celebration of the Passover commemorated the original Passover event that preceded the Exodus. Um, the Eucharist is a memorial, then, of the new Passover, right? From death into life, from sin into freedom from sin that we receive through baptism and continue to uh, deepen in that life through the other sacraments the chief of which is the Eucharist. So the, the Eucharistic liturgy brings us back to Christ's sacrifice and death, or maybe in another way it brings it forward uh, to us, however, however you want to think about that in this mystical time travel. Um, paragraph 1364 puts it this way. In the New Testament, the memorial takes on a new meaning. When the Church celebrates the Eucharist, she commemorates Christ's Passover, and, and listen, it is made present. The sacrifice Christ offered once for all on the cross remains ever present. As often as the sacrifice of the cross by which Christ our past has been sacrificed is celebrated on the altar, the work of our redemption is carried out. So the church, in teaching that the Mass is a sacrifice and the Mass is a memorial, does not mean Christ is being sacrificed again but rather that that one sacrifice is being brought back again and made present ever anew for us. Um, so this is a really important part of understanding memorials and the way that they work. Um, 1365 says, because it is the memorial of Christ's Passover, the Eucharist is also a sacrifice, right? We know it is a sacrifice because of the language in the very prayers. This is my body, this is my blood. You can't give up your body or give up your blood without it being a sacrifice. So something really important um, to just keep our eyes on even if someone refers to the Mass as the Mass, and they don't call it the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, that doesn't indicate that like they don't understand or appreciate the sacrificial character of the Mass. I think sometimes um, Catholics, we can get a little bit too you know, uh, defensive about what terms we use to refer to the Eucharist. 
If you watch the first episode in this series, you'll notice even the Church itself gives us this huge range of terms to use to refer to the Eucharist. Why? Because none of them are going to capture every element of it perfectly. So if you if you call it the Mass, that's that's perfectly acceptable. If you call it the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, that's also acceptable. Because guess what? Every Mass is a holy sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of Christ's body and blood. Um, and speaking of body and blood and Passover, I want to draw your attention to just one, one Scripture passage that I think is really important for us from the Old Testament. That's Exodus chapter 24. So this Exodus chapter 24, after Moses has received the covenant from the Lord, and he reads it, and the people says, the people say, all that the Lord has, has said we will do. So Moses does this. This is Exodus chapter 24, verse 6. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Verse 8, And Moses took the blood and threw it upon the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Right? So even in the, the celebration of the old Passover, we have this notion of blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you. And that same language, very similar language, is, is carried over in the new covenant by Christ's own words and, of course, in the liturgy of the Mass today. So this notion of memorial is very, uh, very important for us. Another thing um, to point out here is that the notion of the sacrifice, right? The sacrifice uh, being an unbloody um, sacrifice. So it is a sacrifice in the Mass, but it doesn't look maybe like an Old Testament sacrifice, right? We're not seeing blood being literally poured out on the altar, although we are seeing blood, right? It is in the chalice, but it doesn't have the appearance so this is um, from the uh, Council of Trent. It's actually in this catechism, but it comes from the Council of Trent. So pa paragraph 1367, we're jumping a little bit here. The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. Right. So it is still a sacrifice, but it does not appear visually to our senses as a bloody sacrifice, but it's still Christ's body and blood. The same priest, right? Christ the high priest is truly the celebrant of the liturgy, uh, he's still celebrating, and he's still offering us his body and blood, but he's offering it to us in a different manner. Um, the sacrifice of the Eucharist is a sacrifice of Christ, but it's also the sacrifice of the Church. So one of the things that the uh, Catechism works through over several paragraphs, and I'm not going to read all of them because I want to focus a little bit more on the, the way Christ is present in the Eucharist, is this notion that the sacrifice of the Eucharist applies to the whole Church, to the Church living, dead, on earth, in heaven, even in purgatory, um, and of all times. So it is, it is a, a critical feature of the, of the Church's life because it is for the whole Church, right? So we really are united 
temporally and spatially um, by the sacrifice of the Eucharist. Now, I want to spend a little bit more time working more carefully through the paragraphs that talk about the way Christ is present in the Eucharist. So we're going to jump ahead a bit again to paragraph 1373. I know in other episodes I've read through the whole thing. This, I wanted to take more time on this section. So starting in 1373, we'll look here at the, at the text again. So the, the Catechism says, Christ Jesus, who died, yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us, is present in many ways to his church, in his word, in his church's prayer, where two or three are gathered in my name, in the poor, the sick, and the imprisoned, in the sacraments of which he is the author, in the sacrifice of the Mass, and in the person of the minister. But he is present most especially in the Eucharistic species. Here's something I think... Catholics, especially Catholics who are, and this might sound strange, but I think especially Catholics who are well catechized, we tend unconsciously to put all of our emphasis on Christ being present in the Eucharist. Now, that's good for us to know that Christ is present in the Eucharist, and he really, truly, and substantially is present in the Eucharist, but the Catechism teaches us That's not the only way or the only mode in which Christ can be present to us. So it it outlines here, and I just read it, but Christ is present in his word. In the scriptures, Christ is, is present. It's not like the scriptures have nothing to do with Christ. Christ is present in the prayer of the church, right? The scriptures tell us where two or three are gathered, I am there in their midst. So when the church is at prayer, Christ is present. Christ is present in the poor, the sick, the imprisoned, right? When was I in prison and, and, and vi- when were you in prison and I visited you? When were you sick and I, and I you know, made you well? Or when were you poor and, and I clothed you or fed you, right? Christ is present in the poor, the sick, the imprisoned. He's in all of the sacraments. He's present there. But the church will distinguish and say Christ is most especially present in the Eucharistic species, meaning in the hosts which become his body, and the wine which becomes his blood. So in the Eucharist, Christ is really, truly, substantially present. He's present there in a different way and with more fullness than he has found in these other places, but it doesn't mean that this is the only place where you can find Jesus, where you can find Christ. And I think that's important for us to admit as Catholics that we don't want to say, for instance, that a Protestant could never have Christ present in their midst in some way. Christ can be wherever he wants. But what we have a certainty about of faith is that Christ is present in a special way, in a special mode in the Eucharist, in the body and blood, on the altar, at the Mass, um, or if, you know, if it's an adoration, he's, he's still present in the host. Okay, 1374. The mode of Christ's presence under the Eucharistic species is unique. It raises the Eucharist above all sacraments as the perfection of the spiritual life and the end to which all the sacraments tend. In the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ, is truly, really, and substantially contained. This presence, this is a really important sentence, this presence is called real, by which is not intended to exclude the other types of presence as if they could not be real too, but because it is presence in the fullest sense. That is to say, it is a substantial presence by which Christ, 
God and man makes himself holy and entirely present. So even there, notice, Christ is truly, really, truly, and substantially present in the Eucharist. It's real, but that doesn't mean the other forms of his presence are fake or unreal. Christ is present in the Scriptures, right? We should be careful with the Scriptures. I shouldn't carelessly toss this thing around, right? To, to, if, if I just didn't care about this book, the Bible, the Scriptures, that would not be fitting, right? But it also wouldn't be fitting for me to go to adoration of, of a Bible, right? And this is, I think, one way to kind of see the distinction. doesn't mean there's nothing special about Christ's presence in His Word, um, or in the, in the church's prayer, or in the sick or the poor, uh, but he is present differently in the Eucharist. Now, uh, how does he become present there? How does he become really, truly, and substantially present in the Eucharist? It is by his own words and the action of the Holy Spirit. So Christ's own words and the action of the Holy Spirit that transform ordinary bread into the body of Christ ordinary wine into the blood of Christ. And there's a really, really excellent point here uh, that the Catechism goes through here about the power of God's Word to transform. Um, Think of it this way. In the beginning, in Genesis, how does God create? God creates through speaking, right? Let there be light, and there is. He creates by the power of His Word, and so in the early church, the fathers of the church were wrestling with how, how could bread you know, become Christ's body? They believed that it could. There was no question of that, but how do we account for that? How, how can bread become Christ's body? And one of the suggestions that was put forward by a number of church fathers, but there's a quote here in the Catechism from St. Ambrose um, that really helps understand this, is, well, it's how, how powerful is God's Word? So they reasoned, if God's Word can create from nothing a new being with its own nature, how easy would it be, comparatively, for God's Word to change the nature of something that was already there into another being, right, into another nature? So to create the world by speaking out of nothing seems to be a little bit more challenging than to turn bread into Christ's body, or wine into his blood. So this is from paragraph 1375. It's a quote from St. Ambrose to this effect. So check it out. Be convinced that this is not what nature has formed. The Eucharist is not what nature has formed, but what the blessing has consecrated. The power of blessing prevails over that of nature, because by the blessing, nature itself is changed. Here's, the, here's sort of the key line. Could not Christ's word, which can make from nothing what did not exist, change existing things into what they were not before? It is no less a feat to give things their original nature than to change their nature. All right, so that's what happens in the celebration of the Mass. Through the words of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit— the body becomes present where there previously was bread. The wine becomes really, truly, substantially present where previously there was just, uh, I'm sorry, the blood truly becomes really, truly, and substantially present where previously there was just wine. 
Another point here that is made um, in, in paragraph 1376, the next paragraph, is uh, what we mean by transubstantiation, uh, the, the doctrine that the Church holds about how this change takes place. So it, it takes place how? First of all, by the words, the Word of Christ that has the power to change. But what does the change mean? Well, this is from, again, the Council of Trent, but it's in our current, our current catechism, same, so it's one, one book, contains the same teaching. 1376, the Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring, because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God, and this Holy Council now declares again that by the consecration of bread and of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and, appro- and properly called transubstantiation. Okay, so the appearance of bread and wine remain because the accidents— the accidental properties, it looks like, feels like, smells like, even tastes like bread and wine. All those accidental properties remain, but the substance in which those accidents are inhering uh, changes. So there is no bread anymore. There's no bread after the consecration. There's only Christ's body, and there is no wine. There is only Christ's blood. The accidental properties remain, but the substance has changed. Important, too, uh, to note here is Christ is fully present in a flake of one host or in a single droplet of the precious blood. Christ is fully present. So it's not that you need one whole host to truly receive Christ in the Eucharist, for instance, or that you've got to drink the entire chalice to receive Christ in, in the blood. Rather, a single speck of the host or a single drop of the blood, you have received Christ fully. Which is, now that we're in you know post-COVID times, I don't know that we'll ever go back to being able to receive the blood at Mass, but something that I thought as a child foolishly uh, was that if I didn't receive the body and the blood that I wasn't really going to communion. It was like I was going to half communion if I received just the body, um, or half if I received just the blood, but if I received both, then it was like a whole communion. I actually did it. The Church does not teach, us to, does not teach that. The Church teaches, rather, if you receive the tiniest piece of the host, you have received the body of Christ he is truly, really, and substantially present there and fully manifest in the, the smallest piece of the host or in a single droplet of the precious blood, which is why if you've ever seen somebody, you know, God forbid, drop a host or spill uh, the chalice, why we, why we treat it so, so carefully, um, because he's present there. Um, and he is present there as long as the, Euchar- as the Eucharistic species subsists, right? So essentially, once it has been digested— the church would say, then, then his presence no longer inheres there. But then he's in you, he's in your heart, right? So, um, 1378, I want to talk a little bit about the worship of the Eucharist. This is really, really important for us um, to, to think of, that, that the Eucharist is not something that we, we only have this fleeting chance to receive during Mass, and then we have to wait till the next Mass to be there again. 1378. 
Worship of the Eucharist. In the liturgy of the Mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine by, among other ways, genuflecting or bowing deeply as a sign of adoration of the Lord. The Catholic Church has always offered and still offers to the, offers to the sacrament of the Eucharist the cult of adoration, not only during Mass, but also outside of it, reserving the consecrated hosts with the utmost care, exposing them to the solemn veneration of the faithful, and carrying them in procession. So we have these other ways of offering worship and adoration to the Eucharist. Certainly in Mass, to receive the Eucharist is extremely significant, and we express our, our you know, reverence for the Eucharist by bowing, by kneeling. Sometimes to, you, you may kneel to receive uh, the Eucharist, for instance, but we can also do similar acts of devotion and piety and worship of the Eucharist outside of Mass through adoration, processions, um, and uh, by, by going to visit the Blessed Sacrament, for instance, in the tabernacle. Um, something really, really neat, though, I think, about solemn veneration, solemn adoration, and, and procession that kind of demonstrates to others as, as a sort of evangelical witness what we believe about the Eucharist. Um, so if you have an opportunity to, to go to adoration, um, just something to, to maybe meditate on is the way Christ is still present there and, and how you can offer a, a different kind of worship to the Eucharist than just receiving the Eucharist at Mass. Uh, there is, in paragraph 1379, uh, a discussion about the, the function of the tabernacle, um, and it, essentially the Church is, uh, is saying that the tabernacle should be located in a worthy place in the Church to emphasize what it contains, namely Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. I want to uh, move here to, to paragraph 1380. Here is the Church trying to, to sort of explain for us why we have Christ present in the Eucharist, and, and it's sort of, you can think of it in, in, in a different way. Why don't we have Christ physically present among us? Um, Fulton Sheen once, once said that it would seem like it would be easier for Christ to have remained physically present on earth than to go to heaven and give us, you know, the Holy Spirit and the Eucharist and stuff as a way of kind of continuing his presence here to the church. Why, why couldn't he have stayed on earth? And he actually argued, if, if you lived around the time of Christ, you would have had a very hard time getting to be present. I mean, unless you lived in the right part of the world and happened to be where he was, uh, you know, you wouldn't see him. Now, Christ could go wherever he wanted, but the people that were on earth with him for those 33 years, really not that great a percentage of them saw Christ or were able to be present to him. But in the Eucharist, he can be present, you know, al almost anywhere. Um so 1380 kind of lays out, lays out this, this, this reasoning. So here's the paragraph. It is highly fitting that Christ should have wanted to remain present to his church in this unique way. Since Christ was about to take his departure from his own in his visible form, he wanted to give us his sacramental presence. Since he was about to offer himself on the cross to save us, he wanted us to have the memorial of love with which he loved us to the end, even to the giving of his life. In his Eucharistic presence, he remains mysteriously in our midst as the one who loved us and gave himself up for us, and he remains under signs that express and communicate this love. And then we'll close here with, with a, a quote from John Paul II about the, the importance of the Eucharist, right? So this is the next sentence in the paragraph. 
The church and the world have a great need for Eucharistic worship. Jesus awaits us in this sacrament of love. Let us not refuse the time to go to meet him in adoration, in contemplation full of faith, and open to making amends for the serious offenses and crimes of the world. Let our adoration never cease. So I want to end that end here with, with that, this call from John Paul II and from the Catechism, right, to go to adoration, to adore the Eucharist outside of Mass, um, and to give ourselves more fully to him. He, he who wanted to give us this means of presence, this means of remaining with us, will we go? I think it's a good question to end with. So will you go? Will you go to adore him? Because he wants you to. Thanks. <laughs>